0: If you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're in the book of Matthew, starting with the very last verse in Matthew 15, and then reading Matthew 16:1 through 12. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The Pharisees and Sadducees demand signs and the Pharisees and and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them. When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, "O you of little faith, Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This morning, we will be there in Matthew uh, 16, mostly. Um, Over the last eight years or so, I've had the special privilege of being able to teach my three oldest kids how to drive. Um, Now, I do better with daughters, so maybe Caleb, somebody else taught you how to drive, I think maybe mom did a little bit there. but. Right now, Hallie has her permit, and, she, and we've been driving a lot together. She's been putting the hours in and doing really, really well at it. Um, but one of the things that you notice when you're, you're teaching kids, or when you learn anything, there's all these things. So when you learn how to drive, it's okay, you've got two pedals. You've got to figure out how to use your feet. You've got to figure out how, you know, how the power steering works. You've got to figure out how the blinkers work, how everything, where, you know, how bright lights work and how not to turn the radio on, how, not, how to like, survive without your phone while you're driving, these kind of things. And they're trying to figure all this out. And then you get out on the road and all of a sudden you've got, you've got other traffic, you've got other cars and you've got all sorts of signs, you've got stoplights, you've got people doing dumb things, you've got um, all sorts of stuff. So you have to figure all this stuff out and it's, uh, it takes a while to do that. Um, as I have taught all three of my kids, um, one of the things that is the most confusing and just most, because you're thinking of so many other things, are street signs, right? And there's this red sign, octagonal sign, I'm not sure if you know what that means, have you guys seen those? They have white letters, they say stop on them. And there's one particular stop sign in, in Prineville that I think every single one of my kids have driven right through, and it's the one right in front of the middle school. On knowledge, you guys ever miss that one? If you're heading north on knowledge, you're right in front of the entrance to the middle school. There's a stop sign right there. Sometimes there's kids. Anybody ever driven right through that one and missed it? Just admit it. Okay, there's a few of you who have. Every one of my kids have done that. And Holly did it just in the first couple of weeks. She was driving. I'm like, you saw that stop sign, right? She's like, no, I had no idea there was a stop sign there. Um, so we do that. We miss signs that are right in front of us sometimes, and. Um, a lot of times, thankfully, it didn't cause an accident. We didn't hit any kids. It actually reminds me of a funny story of a, of a youth pastor who used to pastor at this church in the late 90s. And, and back in the 90s, that was the high school. Okay, that's where I went to high school, where the middle school is now. That was a high school. And we used to do, do this thing in the 90s where on one Wednesday in the fall in the morning, all the Christian kids in the school would gather around a flagpole. It's called See You at the Pole. You, you gather on that flagpole and you come and pray. And a lot of times the youth pastors in town would be invited to come be a part of that as well. And so there was this morning, this is at, I was at college, I think, but the, the youth pastor was running late to see you at the poll. So there are all these, ki- all these Christian kids around the pole in front of the high school, ready to pray, and the youth pastor is running late, and he comes tooling down that road, blows right through the stop sign, and there's a cop sitting there. <laughs> Pulls him over. I th- did he get a ticket? Yeah, he got a ticket, right? <laughs> Right there in front of, in front of the high school, in front of the kids as they're praying. And it was a funny thing. So, Hallie, you're not the only one that's missed that stop sign. But she hasn't ever missed it since then. It's an easy one to miss. But it's easy for us to miss signs sometimes when they're right in front of us. And that theme you're going to see uh, blowing right through this uh, text this morning. Which begins this way. It says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, verse 1, came and to test him, they asked him to show them a what? A sign. From heaven, They're looking for signs. Now this is only one of two times in Matthew's Gospel that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are mentioned together. Okay, only one other time they're mentioned together. And this, the simple reason that the Pharisees and the Sadducees aren't often seen together is because they're, they're two groups that didn't regularly associate with one another. So if we were to put it in today's terms, it would be like, so the Republicans and the Democrats came to talk to Jesus, right? You, you, you get the picture there. That it's very unusual for them to be together because they were really religious or political enemies. So the question is, what would cause religious and political enemies to come together? They have very different motivations, very different beliefs. What would cause them to come together in such a way? Well, you've probably heard the ancient proverb, my, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So when it comes to Jesus, sometimes our differences aren't as divisive as Jesus can be. Right? Sometimes our differences aren't as divisive as Jesus can be. So Jesus, in his grace, will do the work. And this is what he does with the church. In his grace, he calls people that shouldn't have anything to do with each other. He calls them into family and unites them. Well, he also does the same thing with those who don't like him because shared opposition to Jesus can also bring people together against him. And that's what's happening here. The Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus and they demand a sign. And it says that they do this in order to test him. And this is an interesting word because the word that's translated to test can also be translated as to tempt, it just depends on the context that you find it in. So in certain contexts, testing and tempting are such close ideas that they're really two sides of the same coin. They're virtually interchangeable. So for instance, if you'll turn with me back to Matthew chapter 4, and I know we did this last week, but we're going to do this again. me go back to Matthew chapter 4, and you'll hear the same word, But in most of your versions, in most of your Bibles, the word is translated tempt instead of test. So verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. Same word there. Tempted could also mean tested by the devil. Two verses down in verse 3, it takes that same word and it makes it into a noun. And it says, The tempter came and said to him, Same word can be translated tempter or tester. And if you look at this story of the temptation of Jesus, depending on the perspective, this incident could be either a temptation of Jesus or it can be a testing of Jesus. What does your Bible call it? Mine says temptation, the temptation of Jesus. But depending on the perspective, it can be one or the other. So as the tempter, if you take his perspective, The devil wanted Jesus to give in. So he sees it as a temptation. He wants him to give in. He wants him to succumb. He wants Jesus to fail. Just like Israel had done so long ago in the wilderness when they were faced with very similar temptations. But let's take God's perspective of this story for a moment. It says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Which means that God intentionally sent Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tested. This was an opportunity for Jesus through his obedience to prove who he was, to prove his identity, to prove his calling as the new and the better Israel. And I think this is the same uh, in our text today, here in Matthew 16, that this word doesn't simply mean to test, as if testing Jesus were just this kind of good-natured endeavor on the part of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We really would just want to see what this guy is up to, so we can pat him on the back and tell him a good job. That's not what they're doing here. This was an opportunity. Excuse me. This was an opportunity for them to come to Jesus and and actually take a place of temptation. It's clear that what they're actually doing is is in step with the devil from chapter 4, they are tempting Jesus. So back to chapter 4 if you're not still there. I want you to consider how closely what they're doing with Jesus, their testing of him, aligns with the devil's second temptation. Remember there's three temptations. One, the devil said, turn these stones into bread. And then the second is this. It starts in verse 5. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and he placed him on the highest point of the temple. And you can imagine the view from up there, right? You're in the temple, and there's these crowds of people below. You could just see him milling down there. And, if, and he says this. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and in their hands they will take you up, lest you should strike your foot with a stone. And then Jesus responds this way. He said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's that word again, to put to the test. It could also also be translated, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So in this particular temptation, what the the devil is doing, what the tempter is doing, was appealing to the Jewish desire for a sign. They wanted a sign. They want something impressive that would definitively prove Jesus' messianic claim to them. So the devil is basically saying, Jesus, do something to impress them so that they cannot deny who you claim to be. I mean, can you think of a more powerful and conclusive sign from heaven than a dude leaping off the temple, falling down? You can, you can imagine the crowd's parting, everybody's screaming, and then at the last minute, he gets picked up and placed down in the temple. I mean, what would you do with that guy? Right? Everybody would want to follow him, Right? So so the devil is tempting him to give them a conclusive sign to impress them. And you have to see that in this very temptation in chapter 16, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing the same thing. Jesus, do something to impress us. Give us a sign from heaven so that we cannot deny who you claim to be. So what's happening here is the Pharisees and Sadducees are playing the part of the tempter. They're placing themselves in league with the devil. And at the end of the day, all those who willingly oppose Jesus play the role of the devil. They play the role of the tempter. They play the role of the enemy of God. And they miss the signs. Let me read these first few verses of chapter 16. Now we're going to be back there. Let me read the first few verses again with just a slightly different translation. Verse 1, And the Pharisees And the Sadducees came to tempt and test Jesus, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. But he, answering, said to them, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the heavens are red. And in the morning, today we'll have bad weather, for the heavens are dark and red. So on the one hand, you know how to discern the face of the heavens. But on the other hand, you're not able to discern the signs of the times. And you'll notice that I exchanged the word heavens in verses 2 and 3 for the word sky in verse 2 and 3, because the same word can be translated as it is in verse 1, heaven, and then verse 2, that same word is translated as sky. So Jesus is using this subtle play on words in these verses, which you don't see in English, but they're there in the original. He's using this subtle play on words to communicate a pretty damning irony for these leaders. He's saying to them, how is it that you can read the heavens? You can read the sky, you can read the weather, you can read the clouds, and you can't read the work of heaven, that is God's kingdom, that is right in front of you. You're asking for a sign from heaven. You're asking for a sign from the sky. And yet you're blind to the work of the heavens being manifested on the earth through my ministry. So so the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they could see the underside, the bottom side of the sky. All they could see were the clouds, but they refused to look past the clouds. They refused to really look at heaven. And they couldn't see the realities of the kingdom of heaven that had broken into the earth in the person and in the work of Jesus. So in Jesus' ministry, the power of heaven was being clearly manifested on the earth in obvious, undeniable ways. But they refused to recognize it. They refused to accept it. They had no idea what God was up up to in the heavens so they couldn't recognize what he was up to on the earth. These were the signs of the times that they were unable to see. It was the very power of heaven in Jesus as he was going around and healing the sick. As he was allowing blind men to see. As he was giving a hearing to the deaf. As he was cleansing lepers. As he was raising the dead. As he was Feeding the multitudes. This was the work of heaven on earth, and they couldn't see it. And I think it's a worthwhile exercise to ask yourself a similar question Do you recognize the work of heaven on earth? Or are you regularly demanding something from God? Demanding a sign from God? Demanding a move from God? Demanding an answer to prayer? Are you tuned in what God is actually doing in your life and in the lives of your neighbors and your community? Are you, are, you, are you too distracted by your own priorities to see heaven's fingerprints that are all over this world, that are all over your life? And just as Jesus told his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our job is not just to look for signs, but to be prayerfully watching for God's will to be done. And then when we see it, to partner with it, to engage in it. But the Pharisees and Sadducees refused to see Jesus' work for what it was. And here's what he tells them in verse 4. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then leaving them, he went away. And if you consider that verse for a minute, you kind of have to say, ouch. That's, that's pretty harsh for them to call them, for, for Jesus to call them evil and adulterous. Maybe you're going a little overboard here, Jesus. I mean, what does asking for a sign from heaven here have to do with our morality? Why would you call us evil? Why would you call us adulterous? What does this have to do with our, our sexuality? I don't understand here. And I think the accusation of evil is pretty simple. It's pretty obvious from what we've already talked about. These guys were aligning themselves with Satan, called the evil one, as they tempted Jesus to perform form a sign for them. But the accusation of adultery may sound a little bit more far-fetched, until we remember that the Bible often uses the imagery of adultery as a metaphor for idolatry. So when God's people, his spouse, his bride, would go after other gods instead of worshiping him alone, then that was considered idolatry, but it was also considered spiritual adultery. And so Jesus is accusing them, the Jewish leaders, of unfaithfulness to their husband, Yahweh. So seeking a sign from Jesus when he's given them plenty is a symptom of their idolatry and as such is also a symptom of their spiritual adultery. So here's the illustration that Jesus is giving. They are like a paranoid wife demanding that her unquestionably faithful husband prove his faithfulness. When in reality, she is the one going out every night and committing adultery. And in her exceeding, consistent unfaithfulness to him, and her own knowledge, and perhaps her own guilt and shame and blindness, in her own knowledge of her own adultery and deceit, it causes her to transfer her own unfaithfulness onto him and question his character. Well, if I'm this way, he must be this way too. And in fact, it's probably his fault that I'm this way. And so in their, in their sin, these representative Jews are blind to the faithful and the good character of their God and Savior, Yahweh. And because they're blind, not even a sign will ever convince them. All they're putting in front of Jesus is something, that, a demand that can never be met. And it's just another way to justify their rebellion, to justify their adultery. Here's another illustration. Suppose someone comes to you and says, prove to me that the sun is bright. And naturally you respond, okay, look up in the sky. You see that bright thing up there? That's the sun. And they respond, obviously annoyed with you. Seriously? You're going to have to do better than that. You're going to have to show me proof. So you raise your eye, you know, confused, like, what is happening here? You reply, you realize the only way to prove it is to show you. Just look. If you can't see it, there's no help for you. And spiritual adulterers, and pay pay careful attention here, because this refers, Jesus is using this term to refer to those who believe they have a special relationship with God, which might apply to many of us in this room. Spiritual adulterers refuse to see Jesus for who he is. And instead, they reject him in exchange for a character that fits with their demands. A heart can only be convinced of the genuineness of Jesus if it is willing to look at him and see him for who he is. How do you recognize the sun? You look in the sky. How do you recognize the son of God? You look at Jesus. And if you're not convinced by looking at Jesus, there's nothing I can do for you. There's nothing anyone can do for you. And there's the takeaway, friends. Will you look at and see Jesus for who he is? Not for who you want him to be. Not for the caricature that maybe you grew up with. Will you recognize and embrace and worship the real Jesus? What he calls for. Because if you refuse to recognize Jesus, if you, if you don't take him as he is, the only sign you will receive, he tells us, is what Jesus calls the sign of Jonah. This is the second time he's used this. You can look back in chapter 12 where he actually explains it. But basically he's saying the only sign you'll get is my death, my burial, and my resurrection which is a pretty good sign. We all have that sign. We'll talk about that in a little bit later. But the story continues. He leaves the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He hangs with his disciples. They go across the the lake again. Here's what what it says. When the disciples, uh, in verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Now, this is a story, like many stories in the Gospels, that pictures the disciples kind of as clueless. But the question is, are they as clueless as the Pharisees and Sadducees? Are they clueless in the same way as these guys? Or do they have their own unique kind of cluelessness? It's it's ironic yet fitting in the context of the last two chapters that the disciples forgot to bring bread You remember what happened in the last story? Jesus just fed like 4,000 people Okay, like don't worry about the bread Okay, so they forgot to bring bread on their journey back across the Sea of Galilee But but what what this interaction does is it actually ties us to another big pattern Another big theme in the book of Matthew that, that is touched on here once again And it's the importance of bread This time I won't make you chase it down I'll put the scriptures up there If you go back to Matthew chapter 4 This is the first temptation Remember that temptation story The first one The tempter comes to Jesus and said If you are the son of God Command these stones to become loaves of bread Right, he'd been fasting for 40 days Hadn't eaten anything And so the devil tempts him with this And he answered It is written Man shall not live by bread alone But by every word that comes from the mouth of God And then in Matthew chapter 6 We see these words In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus commands us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. Request what you need from God, and He will provide. Then the next chapter, Matthew 7, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? So consider those just three texts together. The point about bread is clear. Jesus is good. And Jesus provides bread. In other words, he provides both physical and spiritual sustenance in abundance for those who ask. You see the point there? Jesus is the provider. He's the one who gives bread. And then a few chapters later, he gives all of this. He gives this point, reality and substance, in two parallel stories about bread. So you have a story about bread, another story about bread, and then sandwiched in between those. You see what I did there? Okay, just bread, bread, sandwich. Okay, sandwich in between them is another story about bread. Okay, so you have the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14, in which Jesus provides daily bread for Israel. And then parallel to that in Matthew 15, the feeding of the 4,000, which Jesus provides abundant bread, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And then right in between, you have this interaction with the Canaanite woman, which we talked about the last couple weeks where she says, can I just have some of the crumbs? Can I just have a crumb that comes from the children's table? And Jesus says, you can have a loaf. You can have a feast. And he gives her exactly what she asks for in his abundant provisional grace to her. I love how those stories fit together. Again, the point, Jesus is good. He provides bread, both physical and spiritual sustenance in abundance for those who ask. Now, Remember that when all this is happening, all, the, all this teaching is going on, all these stories are happening, Jesus is feeding multitudes, he's, he's, he's uh, meeting the needs of this Canaanite woman, remember that the disciples are there. Right? They're watching, they're interacting, they're handing out bread and, and fish at these, at these big parties that Jesus is throwing. So they've experienced all of this in the company of Jesus. So why in the world would they worry about bringing bread on their trip? And why would they think that Jesus' comment about leaven has to do with their lack of bread? Look at verse 8. Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? In other words, don't you get it yet? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? The seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? So we have the answer to our question. You remember the question? Are the disciples clueless in the same way as the Pharisees and Sadducees? The disciples are clueless. Yes. Oh, you of little faith. You faith. Shrimps. You have little faith. You have such small faith. They're clueless, but not in the same way as the Pharisees. What does he call the Pharisees? An evil and adulterous generation. Okay, there is heaven and earth of difference between a willing obstinacy, a lack of faith, and immature confusion, a littleness of faith. And we can, we can grab onto that with some hope because most of us are little faiths. I'm a little faith. So the issue, isn't la- the issue is lack of faith versus littleness of faith. They see the signs. The disciples see the signs. They even believe. They understand, which we'll see in the next passage, they'll understand who Jesus is, but they don't fully recognize the point of it all. Jesus' ability to provide everything that they need, to provide for every single need, has not sunk down for them to a place of utter reliance, of utter trust, of utter dependence. And friends, this is the temptation about which Jesus is warning them when he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees do not believe, and therefore they demand a sign. In other words, prove it and I'll believe it. There's no humility in their demand. There's only pride. And because they refuse to see Jesus for who he is, they reject him and all that he is. So the temptation that Jesus is warning them against is always unbelief. That's the temptation. And I'm not just talking about intellectual assent or not. Like, I believe this statement. I don't believe that statement. It's not just an intellectual thing. What the Bible talks about when it talks about faith and trust is trust. It's trust. Namely, it's trust in God's good provision. That he is a good and kind father. That Jesus is a good and kind savior. And our constant temptation is not to trust Jesus to be all that we need him to be for every one of our needs. Both physical and spiritual and when we veer towards that temptation, when we're tempted towards unbelief, and we all do this. We all are tempted towards unbelief. The danger he says is that like yeast in a lump of dough, unbelief will quickly work itself into every corner of our lives. And we won't ever be able to extract it. And what about you? What, what does trusting Jesus look like for you? To answer that question, maybe just ask yourself if you completely trust him to fully provide for you. To fully provide for all your physical needs, all your monetary needs, all your relational needs, all your spiritual needs. Something horrific ha- happens tomorrow. What's your response? Is it a response of trust? For me, the temptation to unbelief is constant and simple. And maybe you share it. It's it's in the arena of trusting that God actually loves me. That's where I struggle. And that's where I keep demanding that God prove it. I mean, who in the world could love me of all people? Why in the world would God choose me or love me or show kindness to me? I mean, I, I always say I'm, I'm, if anybody gets kicked out of heaven, I'm probably going to be the first one. Or you might ask, how can God say he loves me and yet I'm still suffering? I still have this loss. My prayers are constantly unanswered. How can God say he loves me? How can Jesus say he provides for me if this is happening? God's Not unclear on the answer to these questions, by the way. From the front to the back of the Bible, it's like a love letter. God loves you. He's not unclear, and the question is, will you trust him completely? Will I trust him completely? And maybe the place where he proves this most poignantly is on the cross. You know, just as we know, the sun is bright by looking at it. It's the only way we can come to trust Jesus is by looking to him. Truly seeing who he is should be proof enough. And when we see him for who he is, we can do nothing but trust him with our entire lives. And, and perhaps the pinnacle of Jesus showing us who he is comes in the final, perhaps the, the most important reference to bread in the book of Matthew. And it's in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. The disciples are sitting around the Passover table and Jesus, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body. You wonder if Jesus loves you, look to the cross Because it's in his death and his burial and his resurrection that Jesus proves once and for all his love for us. It's there that he says, I am good and through my death I have provided true bread for you, both physical and spiritual sustenance in abundance. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is receive. And that's what we do when we take communion. Pretty much every week here at FBC, we take communion. We remember here the great act of love by which Jesus shows us that he truly is the bread of life. And he not only shows us himself, but he shows us ourselves, our own sin, our own great need for forgiveness and his great provision, his death for our sins, his life for our life. So if you're a follower of Jesus, no matter how little your faith is, if you trust his work on your behalf to forgive you of your sins, if you come to this meal and look at these elements, this bread and this juice, and, you, and it reminds you of his body and blood that was given for you, and this is a meal you should come and receive. Remember and taste the grace and the goodness and the provision of Jesus for you. Now today we're going to be taking communion a little bit differently than we normally do. We're going to take it together as a community, as, a, as one, at one time. And one reason for this is because, I don't know if you notice this, but the musicians up here don't always get a chance, or maybe some of them never get a chance, to take communion because they're always leading us in music. So today we're going to do it just a little bit differently. So let me clue you in on how we're going to ask you to do that. Melissa's going to come up and play some music. And as she does that, instead of passing the elements out, we're just going to ask you like normal to come up. There's three stations up here, two stations in the back, to come and grab the elements, the juice and the bread, and take them back to your seat, but don't eat them yet. Okay? Just hold on to them. Maybe spend that time meditating or praying or um, just asking Jesus to show you himself in a new way together. And then after everybody's gotten them, we're going to take them together. And I'll lead us through that in just a moment. Now, if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus... If you, wouldn't, if you maybe say, I'm not sure yet, I'm just I'm wondering, I'm, I'm waiting for him to show himself to me, then the appropriate response for you today is, is to consider all that has been said. Would you consider the claims of Christ and who he is? But if you aren't able to take these elements as a, as a, as a, as a move of trust in Christ's forgiveness of your sins... And the better move for you now is is just to consider and pray. Don't partake, it wouldn't be right because it would just be dishonest. But if you're open to conversation, there's people in this room that would love to have a conversation with you and point you to Jesus, tell you about who he is and what he's done for them. I invite you to talk to someone, a friend, one of the elders, think somebody's gonna be in the prayer room this morning across from the bathroom. So join them there. But let's all come if you pray with me. Jesus, as we come to this meal that you instituted many years ago, we are reminded of your goodness. We're reminded of your provision on our behalf. We're reminded, Jesus, of who you are. So this morning, um, we are people of little faith, and sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes it doesn't sink down deeply. And my prayer this morning is that you would help that to happen, or that you would remove hindrances or obstacles in our own minds and hearts that get in the way of of trusting you more and more fully today so Jesus show us yourself you are the provider you're the sustainer you are the bread of life we love you we're grateful for your death on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins that you offer to us because of that and so this morning Lord we come and partake And we look to you in your name, amen.